Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. Today, I'm so honored to have Ingrid Colstro back on the show. She was one of my first guests when I first launched the podcast, and at that time, she was talking about her new diagnosis of a rare type of ovarian cancer called low-grade serous ovarian cancer. She's back today to share what her experience has been over the last two years, what her treatment has looked like, all of the work that she has done in this field since that time. She's been doing some really meaningful and incredible work in the patient advocacy space, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. And today I'm here with a returning guest, Ingrid Colsto, who was on way back when, uh, when I first started the podcast a couple of years ago. And I'm really honored and excited to have her back on to kind of share what she's been up to since we last spoke. So Ingrid, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. And yes, it's been um, a little over two years now. Yeah. So you have had many awesome guests since then. I think I was one of your very first ones. You know, for those uh, listeners who are new to the show, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your diagnosis, kind of what the initial treatment was like, and then we want to talk about you know, what you've been doing recently. So when I originally spoke with you, you were looking for people who had all different types of gynecological cancers. And at the time that I was speaking with you, I had just found out that I had a very rare subtype of ovarian cancer called low-grade serous. I had never had any um, symptoms of low-grade serous. So when I tore my ab working out and then went in for... um, for that, it ended up turning into a stage 3C cancer. I initially had a debulking that I was not optimally debulked. And I was then had chemotherapy, which I quit because this is a chemo resistant cancer for the most part. And it turns out mine was too. At that time though, I was going through chemotherapy and there seemed to be a lot of not very much information about this cancer. So I looked at my chemotherapy and I decided that it was just going to be my job. So I went through chemotherapy and I also started a nano degree in genetics and precision medicine. And I would go to chemo and I would study and I would start looking at molecular structures of cancer, learn about cancer metastasis, you name it, whatever I could get my hands on in terms of cancer. This is what I wanted to do because I was not coming in contact with anybody who had ever treated this before. And the information that I was receiving was very different than what was online. So So I quit my chemotherapy about uh, the fifth cycle and 
thought that that would be good enough and um, was offered letrozole, which is very common. And I still had tumors inside of my abdomen and things like that. And I eventually ended up going to the University of Colorado Cancer Center where I was paired with an amazing doctor, Dr. Jill Aldridge, who reviewed everything from start to finish and said, we're taking you back to surgery. So I went to have another, it was around 11 and a half hour surgery. So now I've had two debulking surgeries. So I've had 11 organs out, <laughs> a triple bowel resection. I did not have to have a colostomy, which is very common to a lot of women who have ovarian cancer. And that was at the start of COVID. So that was February 14th of last year. And I have been no evidence of disease since then. In that time though, while I completed my chemotherapy, which ended up being the summer of 20, no, sorry, 2019, I ended up um, getting on a board at the University of Colorado, and it is the Colorado Multiple Institutional Review Board, where we review the clinical trials for our university and decide if they go through or not. My whole thinking behind all of this is that I need, needed the language of doctors. I need to know what you're saying when the patient isn't there, and I need to know how to read this data. And as a result, I have had several opportunities. So now I sit on a board where I research clinical trials. I have had lots of genetic panels. We're using precision medicine to guide my treatment. I am no evidence of disease, and I... I continue to try and advocate for, for better outcomes. Like this, this just has to change. My grandmother died of ovarian cancer when she was 48 years old. There is no reason that in today's age, I should be dying of this too. That my father saw his mom died and now he's seeing me. We can do better. That's where I sit now. And, and it has taken me in like lots of different directions. I have sat in on focus groups where commercial companies try to sell you, like ask you how could I sell Keytruda to you, to everything from um, we're developing a cancer center that is patient focused and what do you think that we need to add to that, to campaigns for cancer, to fundraising, to and, and anything in between. Still being a mom, <laughs> I guess. That is incredible. I want to talk a lot about the work that you've been doing. But I first, you know, you said you had made the decision to stop chemo. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what went through that thought process? And was it your thought to do it? Was it your oncologist recommendation? What was the conversation that you had with your oncologist? Because I feel like, I mean, we know this, right? People, that's a hard decision to have. That's a hard discussion to bring up. So any, you know, how did you do it and any advice that you have for people who are wanting to have that difficult talk with their team? So I think the most important thing that people have to understand and um, for listeners who are not aware, there are over 30 types of ovarian cancer. Epithelial ovarian cancers represent around 90% of high-grade epithelials, around 90% of the cancers that 
people see. So your general medical oncologist in a hospital is going to be familiar with that, but they're not really familiar with the three to 5% serous ovarian cancer, the low grade style. So they have been for many, many years putting people into the same category. You have ovarian cancer, you're going to be treated the same way. And the NCNN guidelines were revised around five years ago to indicate that low-grade serous is not histologically close to high-grade serous ovarian cancer at all. And as a result, we've got to change what we're doing. So I sadly, in the beginning of my treatment, was with um, people who were kind of just out of their league a little bit on it, and they were using an old protocol, and they were doing those things, and I literally just said, no, I'm done with this. So it doesn't make sense. Here are the journals, and I was tied by my insurance, right? So... I knew that I needed to, to have cancer care, but I was in that stage in your insurance where you can't leave or switch because it's not open enrollment yet. And so I just literally said, I really appreciate your efforts. I appreciate your time. Nope, not doing it. There's no indication for it. So the thing that struck me about that was that in my notes that were written, I'm considered a non-compliant patient. That is how it was written up. And someone who can't come to terms with their cancer diagnosis. Well, no, what I can't come to terms with is you pretending like you know what this is. And everything you're telling me is a contradiction to just Googling something, which I had far more in-depth research than just Google, right? So I basically just said thank you, and then I, I, I waited mm-hmm. until I could get an insurance that would take me to the University of Colorado. For, for those people who have rare cancers or, you know, want to go to a different place, like, how do you go, how did you find Colorado? Like, how does someone go about figuring out what's the best institution for them. So the number one institution ranked again in the United States is MD Anderson. And uh, then Memorial Sloan, you know, there are standalone cancer centers. The University of Colorado, I wanted to be at a research hospital because I knew based on the courses that I had been taking and the clinical trials and stuff that I had been reading that I could have access to that. And the University of Colorado is a National Cancer Institute um, affiliate. So I knew that not only was I going to be able to get in with some people that had some pretty high level skill, I was also going to be um, able to get into some of these clinical trials because they have access to them through the Cancer Institute. So that's what I was looking for. And I live in Denver, so it was just, it was right there. I had wanted to go to Memorial Sloan and my insurance company declined it. And then Memorial Sloan said I could come, but it would be out of pocket pay. And then I was gonna have to fly there constantly, right? And okay, so anybody, 
if they can, we know that outcomes are far better for people who, with rare disorders that can get to cancer centers and universities. Our problem that we're having is with our insurance companies and like they should have just let me go, right? They should have approved it because they didn't have anybody who specialized in this cancer. So when we use the term, that person battled cancer, they are not talking about like the actual treatment. They are talking about the fight it takes to get access <laughs> to the treatments that they need. And it's ridiculous. So what I am hoping, because I think COVID has been actually real transformative for us in this nation. I don't think change comes from compliance. Change comes when you're willing to stand up and say, this isn't acceptable. We can't do this anymore. We've got to do something better. And then a whole group of people behind you say the same thing, and, and right? So what we have now and what I think is an opportunity with COVID, we've shown that with telehealth, we can really access healthcare from anywhere. If the clinical trial is at Memorial Sloan that I need, I should be able to by my primary care physician or, or my doctor at the cancer center and we can telehealth those visits that we need to talk about how are you feeling, what is your, you know, the data is real transferable. So I'm hoping that in the future, we're gonna be able to open up the clinical trials, especially for rare cancers, that you don't have to be there to do it. Yeah, there was, um, I sat on a committee for the American Society of Clinical Oncology called the Road to Recovery, basically from COVID and looking at, looking at clinical trials and decentralizing clinical trials. And this is exactly what you're talking about. You know, why do you have to go to this place that's maybe 200 miles away from you when you can get the same blood work at your local hospital, you know? So, and I think COVID really has shown people, like you said, that, yeah, you don't have to be in person and you don't have to be in that one location. And hopefully they're especially in rare cancers because, you know, for bigger trials, I mean, for more common cancers, you're going to find these trials at multiple places. So it's more likely right. you'll, you know, within a, somewhere within driving distance, you might have it. But for rare studies that are only open in certain parts of the country, if you're not in that part of the country, then it's, and it's uprooting your well, life and your family and it's, you know, financially impossible. Well, right. And then we're going to throw in their disparities in healthcare, right? And disparities in healthcare. I mean, if a middle class person can't afford to go to a cancer center, why would you think that anybody who is anything else than that would be able to manage that? And it just shouldn't, it, it shouldn't really be that way. So in low grade serious, 10 years ago, you wouldn't even have heard of a clinical trial for low grade serious. We now have, wait for it, wait for it, four. It's great. Mm -hmm. Four clinical trials for low-grade serious. Yeah, <laughs> and no, it's, it's fantastic. It, it is fantastic, and it is also not enough. What's it is also not enough. <laughs> like, there is, um, and then again, you have to be at those centers to be able to access those clinical trials. And so what you end up getting, and so this is, this is the, the difficult 
part for me because now, right, I read these journals. I, I understand what they're saying that, yes, we've made some headway on uh, progression-free survival, but the truth of the matter is overall survival hasn't changed for us. What we have is a series of testing of medication that is showing some stability, maybe some movement, but the side effects from it are like kind of unbearable for some people. And, and then in the, the outcome in the end is that it didn't even improve your overall survival. And so the so for me, you know, you would talk to ovarian low grade serious people. We are all doing very different things. I have some friends who they take treatment because it makes them feel better. Then there's a person like myself who's like, I'm going to wait. I'm just waiting. I want to be an observation person. I know I should take letrozole, you know, I know, but actually, Letrozole is a 9% efficacy rate in this. That means that 80 some percent of the people it doesn't work in and the side effect for me is not worth it. Our newest one that everybody wants to jump on is the trimitinibin. Let's talk about trimitinibin. In this, which they said they showed progression-free survival and those types of things, they literally had four people. <laughs> So when they had an efficacy rate of 25%, that means one person showed response to it. If you were to just say that to a patient and go 25% of the people responded to this and the patient is sitting there without any background knowledge or can't read a journal or do those things, you're going, that sounds pretty good. But actually it was only four people. Well, and I think there's two issues with that. So one, you know, most people, I mean, it's the, it's, it's the burden is on the oncologist and the team to explain the data to the patient, right? To not say mm -hmm. just 25% to say, and I tell people there were this many people in the study. It showed this, it showed that because even if let's say you wanted to read the study as a lay person, you can't get it. There is like those journals cost, I don't know how much to get a paper, you know, a hundred dollars or something like ridiculous, which is a whole other right. issue but you have no way. And then you're stuck listening to whatever commercial like headline, the news sensationalized it as. Right. So, right. And, and that's, you know, and I mean, rare cancers, I hate to say they don't make the news number one. So they don't. No, and they don't. So if you are trying, if you're trying to be an advocate and you're trying to research, there are all these roadblocks ahead of you to begin with. And I like your language of the battle of cancer is all these roadblocks that are put in you. It's just crazy. So, so when people get diagnosed with cancer too, you find a group of who you are in cancer. And there are, you've got fundraisers, you've got people who are like, this is my team, you know, we take our bald pictures and we try to like rally with the support. And then you have people who quit and they're medical abandoners, which are, you know, people who can't just tolerate the diagnosis and, and they're gone, right? So you, you never can reach them. And then you, now we get the beauty of cancer influencers. Cancer influencers are, are a whole new group of people. And I want to mention wholeheartedly and very strongly that 
young women with ovarian cancer have a trove of social and emotional stuff that they deal with from the cost of cancer to my friends are all getting married and I'm infertile because of my stuff to I'm back to living with my parents when I should have been starting a career to I'm ugly. Look at me. And with low grade serous, we are a particularly young group of people who have ovarian cancer. And it is it. And then we get into um, story fatigue. How many times can I say that I have cancer and I'm going to be leaving behind three kids? And people are like, well, yeah, everyone is, <laughs> right? So story fatigue. So the story doesn't even work anymore. And the empathy disappears. And then the depression can set in for a lot of people. And cancer is not, and, and especially with a rare one, you know, you could walk into the emergency room with a bowel obstruction and you can tell within three sentences that the person you're talking to has no idea. So you have to relive all over again your story for the doctor. There's a lot that's going into this that we need to make some, some strides here. Because <laughs> again, I will say there's no reason that my grandmother died of this and that I'm sitting in the same boat and no change, no difference, right? Mm -hmm. We've got to make strides. And I know that they are, but I think our single, if we were looking at breast cancer, for example, breast cancer is pretty amazing. I think and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but one of the best things that we ever did in breast cancer too was to be able to identify it early. Mm -hmm. Right. And in ovarian cancer, we don't have a screening yet. Mm -hmm. Women walking down the street still think that a pap smear would detect ovarian cancer mm -hmm. and their doctors are telling them that their stomach aches are IBS. Well, their issue, the main issue is one, right? We don't, you know, it's like, it's similar to, you know, we recall many years ago, there was a push for, to tell females that, you know, symptoms of a heart attack in, in women are, are not the same as a heart attack in men, right? You don't have that crushing elephant sitting on my chest thing in, in females that you have in males. And it's, right. it's the same thing in ovarian cancer. All of those symptoms, you know, first of all, yes, some people, some people know what the main symptoms of ovarian cancer are. But you're right, they're often attributed to IBS. Oh, you just ate something. Oh, it's your period, whatever. But then there are people who all don't have those classic feeling full, feeling bloated symptoms, right? They're just right. a little nauseous, something's wrong. Um, so, and then, but well, that was me. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I was totally an asymptomatic person. So, um, one thing though, in 2014, I had gotten T-boned in a car accident, and on my CT scan for the car accident, they saw the carcinomatosis. I had sent it to the NCI to, to get a consult, and the person that I consulted with told me it was nothing. If I had caught that cancer, all he needed to say was, I think you need to go for an ultrasound, and I think you need to explore it a little more. He didn't need to say it was nothing. He didn't need to say any of that. He needed to say, we need some more tests. 
So how do you process that, right? Now it's a couple of years later and this is happening and you have that scan from a couple of years ago. Like, how do you I, reconcile all of that? Well, I can't. So what ends up happening and a lot of cancer psychologists will will tell you that this is a common thing for patients in these types of scenarios is you have revenge fantasies that you don't act out on that you want to like smash their car, ruin their life, uh, send them hate letters, you know, because all you had to do was just say, we need more data. Mm -hmm. And there are many women, I cannot tell you how many stories I have of women who are like, it took over two years for me to get a diagnosis. My gynecologist never asked me to do a a vaginal ultrasound. And so what, what I think ends up happening is that there's a lot of pushback on the patient. Well, you should have known. Well, now we know too that with our friends who are people of color, that there are many people that don't even believe they're in pain mm -hmm. when they walk through the door. Mm -hmm. Stop the madness. <laughs> Like, I, I can't take the onus for everything, right? I, I don't know everything. I'm not the doctor. I'm telling you I'm hurt. Help. It makes me sad, especially when I start to think about my survival rate. And I think if I had just not listened to them and done something different, and many patients do that. It's yeah. part of the grief cycle. Well, exactly. And I, I think that it's really, it's just, it's hard because we can't, put burden on patients, right? If patients are coming and saying something is wrong, I don't know what it is, I'm struggling. You know, the hard part in medicine is that often we don't find an answer. And I think that's when people get frustrated on both sides. Um, yeah. But there needs to be, and I, I feel very strongly that you have to trust, I as the doctor have to trust the patient and the patient has to trust the doctor. And you have to have that communication and to be able to have those conversations saying, look, I know, I know the scans are negative, but I feel something or, you know, whatever those conversations are to be able to trust your mm -hmm. team enough to say, I'm stopping chemotherapy, um, you know, not be labeled as non-compliant and, and things, things like that. Um, I, I feel so when I was going through chemotherapy, it was really, it was hard. I went into, I was depressed. I mean, because of the chemicals. Right. And um, I had asked our antidepressant and I really don't take any medicine. And my doctor's like, no, you don't need it. You can get through this, you know? And so when I do did ask, it was sort of like, no. So I ended up seeing a sort of a psychologist. And what we came to was that my whole life, my job's work has been working on behalf of people who, um, Prior to having my twins, I worked for the Office for Civil Rights in the U.S. Department of Education. And my job was to read data and figure out schools that were not complying with No Child Left Behind, and then we are going to work to change this, right? So how that translates into me sitting in the cancer center was I would get an overwhelming feeling that the doctors were hurting the patients. And I wanted to help them not hurt. Once I get through chemotherapy, my only response to who I am in cancer is to advocate for 
the disenfranchised cancer patient, the one who is, doesn't, can't talk to the doctor, the women's stories that I hear in rural communities who are on Facebook, who are hurting over this is just, it just kills me. It kills all of us because we want to basically like load you up in a van and take you to the nearest cancer center and say, you know, if, if, if <laughs> somebody's coming outside to help, <laughs> right? Yeah, so it's, um, it, it is a journey of a lot of pain and a lot of heartache for people and everybody really addresses it a different way. The way that I address it is to, is to make sure that I volunteer in the clinics where the poorest people go. And I sit and talk. And with COVID, it's been interesting because I've been working a lot of vaccination clinics. And I have an opportunity to sit next to them. And they're very nervous to get the vaccines. A lot of them are, right? And I can say, well, I have cancer and I take metformin. And you'd be surprised, a lot of them take metformin because diabetes is prevalent mm -hmm. in these situations, right? And so then we get to talk about cancer. And so then there's the advocacy. Have you gotten checked? Do you know where to get checked? Do you know the paperwork you need to file? I can help you with that. That is what has turned into my, that is what is birthed from this ridiculous labor. <laughs> But that I've been for two years. I think that's incredible because, you know, what I have seen is so when people come for their follow-up, okay, when, you know, when was your last mammogram? When was your last colonoscopy? When did you see the gynecologist? And the, what we, we are going to see such incredible negative and devastating repercussions of this pandemic, you know, we're already seeing it but people aren't going for their screening. And what's happening is, oh, well, no one, you know, right. no one called me. And I said, you can't rely on that now. The entire healthcare system has changed. You know, you have to, you have to know, okay, when, when should I get my next colonoscopy? When do I need to get, you know, my pap smear, my right. gynecology exam? And what we, people, what we need to do is educate people. What I try to do on my platform is educate people on, you know, what are your risk factors? And you have to know what you are at risk for developing um, what your health is so that you right. know how to advocate for yourself. I can tell you, no one knows. If you ask the average person, are you at risk for ovarian cancer? They will have no idea. You know, it's not, you know, are you at risk? Uh, for that's cancer? very true. They won't have any idea. They know if they're at risk based on family history, but all that lifestyle stuff, no one talks about. And if you know that you're at higher risk, then although we don't have really good screening at all, but we have some stuff with ultrasounds and CA125 levels and of course mammograms for breast cancer, that can guide how often, when you do it, when you start, all of that. But no one knows this stuff. But see, we, we, we discount, especially in our um, sort of disenfranchised communities, that they even have the education level to know what that particular sentence means, right? You're right. So... It is, um, I'll give it to breast cancer because we, we have, you know, if you say I have the BRCA gene, there's a lot of people who really understand what that means. They're like, oh, you're going to get, you could get breast cancer, right? What we're hoping within, and I'm hoping within the next few years in precision medicine is that they have identified that in low grade serous, we're predominantly KRAS mutated. 
And KRAS mutations are going to be, they're the next wave. So a lot of people have KRAS and a lot of people have BRCA. And I want KRAS to be as common of a mutation in a discussion. And then we trickle it down into these other communities, right? So um, just think of the medical privilege that many of us have by having good insurance to go to a cancer center, getting foundation one tumor testing. And if you can imagine a lot of these women who sit in counties where their hospital infrastructure is just falling apart anyway, right? And then they see on Facebook or Instagram and then they're like, I got tested and I'm at MD Anderson and um, I'm using precision medicine to guide my treatment. I mean, that's a whole other level of privilege that is, should be for everyone, really. So I want to reverse some of the enthusiasm that I had in my first podcast about precision medicine. And I want to honestly and wholeheartedly pull back and say, I am medically privileged. And as a result, my overall life expectancy will probably be longer. And it's my responsibility because I got that gift to ensure that there's others who know they can access it too. That's so beautifully said. And, but you, and you're right. And I, I'll be honest, I, I haven't thought about it in that way, but it's, it's correct. You know, the, the racial and disparities and in, in the, you know, social determinants of health and access to care. I mean, they're so discrepant in certain communities that it's heartbreaking. I, I would actually like to do something with you that I think we can do, uh, and the listeners will be able to do it. Do you, can you type on your computer? Um, I can. While we're recording this? I can, yes. Okay. So what I want you to put into your web browser is just GoodRx. Okay, GoodRx. You know the GoodRx app yes. that everyone has? Yep, okay, GoodRx. Okay. Okay. So pulling GoodRx. And the GoodRx app, at the top, it'll say type. And I want you to type in trimitinibib. Okay. I'm like, all right, how much trimitinibib for, if I want it? How much is it? Uh, okay, let's see here. If I want it, well, that's nice. $12,407. That's correct. Okay, so... Let that's, me get that's this with straight. a coupon. That's with a coupon. I wonder how with much. With a coupon. So when I sit and I and I have been privileged to listen to like lots of podcasts because ovarian cancer groups they put out like you know mm -hmm. all rare cancers. We're going to talk about it, and I love them. And Johns Hopkins is doing amazing things, and everyone's doing amazing things. And she's like, and we've got these mech inhibitors that we can try to use and whatever. A lady, no one has $12,861 a month. Mm -hmm. On average, it costs a woman with, who wants to use trimitinibib for one year of using it, $289,000. Because the majority of insurance companies won't cover it. So you've given me a great new tool. Thank you. You've, you've presented me with trimitinibib. It's going to give me sores all over my face, my hair is going to fall off, it might hold me stable, and it's going to cost me $12,000 a month. I do not know what world we are living in. <laughs> You're right. No, You're right. That is not good. 
So, and I, and I go over this sometimes with my awesome husband, Aaron, and my parents and stuff like that. And I say, can you imagine if with COVID, they came out and they said, all right, we got this great new vaccine for you. It's got a 7% efficacy rate. You're going to lose your hair. You are going to feel so tired you can't get out of bed. Your teeth might fall out. You're going to get a rash. Um, it might not work against COVID, but it's worked in 7% of the people, and you have to pay $12,000 for it. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you laugh you out of the room. I love this what we do to cancer patients every day. I, I, what an analogy. I mean, there is, and I, I think it's wonderful that there has been such a push toward patient advocacy. I think that every clinical trial needs to have patient, you know, not even, not at the IR, at the IRB level, you need patient advocates, but at the conception of clinical trial design, you know, we need patient advocates. Are we just using medic? Like I wish, and, and after being on a clinical trial board for over two years now, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Some of the clinical trials that come through, they're just really good and they're really smart. But some come through and they pass, but they're not really that smart. I mean, you're like, like who designed this, you know? Um, I, want, I, I want researchers to really consider how much would this drug cost? Can we repurpose something? We need to really look at the pharmacokinetics of what we're doing and say, say, is is this what we mean to be doing? I don't know. Is it cost effective? Is the toxicity rate somewhat low? Is it going, are we trading, trading one disease for potentially for another one, right? And I don't often think that people are really considering that. I don't, I don't know what they're considering. So those are all the kinds of questions that cancer patients on the outside just want answers to. Mm -hmm. Who came up with that? That's the coupon. <laughs> How much does yeah. it cost? Oh no, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. And I, you know, what we see, you know, the other part of it too is well, the pharma, the pharmaceutical companies, and you know, they they do have. I don't know about fortrametinib, but for other drugs, you know, they have patient assistance programs. Okay, so they and they're great. However, you know what no one talks about with these patient assistance programs is that they expire very often in a year. So Correct. when you're on the drug for 13 months, well, or 15 months or two years, well, you don't have $5,000 a month or however right. much it costs to pay for it. So what I run into, you know, we use in metastatic breast cancer, we use a lot of um, CDK4-6 inhibitors, so ribocyclic. Yep. You know, is being looked at in yeah. low grade series, so low grade too, yeah. Um, Havocyclib, um, and their drugs are fantastic. And for the, I mean, they have some side effects, but they're they're actually you know fairly they're well tolerated, but they're crazy expensive. And so now right. you get to a year, and I have people who are crying in my office because they don't know how they're going to afford it because their patient assistance right. has run out. But that's literally the drug that's saving their life. Right. And so, then, now, I, so now I, you have to what? Go fund me for everything? Mm -hmm. I got to go fund me for, to get the medication that I want. Um, Non-medical switching is probably pretty prevalent with you too, which I just met with three of our state senators last week, and I'm going to testify in our, our state for a bill that we're trying to get passed. In Colorado, the insurance companies will set the price at like, okay, $12,000 for your intermittent bid. 
they can change the cost of that anytime that they want. And so what ends up happening is that, especially in HIV patients and cancer patients, is that the drug will be working, they'll change the price of it, and the people will have to switch medications, which create symptoms, different symptoms, make them more sick, their cancer returns, it gets worse, they stop doing it, all because a person who is a non-person, non-medical person has decided to increase the price. So in Colorado, we're pushing a bill where they can't, they set the price for one year and it follows that insurance cycle and you can't change the price within that one year. But you're so right, the next year they could totally increase yeah. the price on that. And then you go back to a drug that creates different symptoms, might change your cancer. I, My heart is broken. Like it, it is a broken, uh, I, I sit there, I, I just don't know what to say or do about it, except to get on a soapbox and... <laughs> no, but I think you need to. I think you need to share. I mean, this is this conversation was really enlightening, you know, brought to life a lot of things that, I mean, I, you know, we don't, I don't think about so much often on a day-to-day basis because our day-to-days, you know, seeing patients and getting them what they need, but you know, that's why I started the podcast because I don't have these conversations in my day-to-day life. And you see patients for 15, 20 minutes. I don't get to sit and chat for an hour and hear all these things, but I'm sure that every single patient I'm seeing is, has something, something, yeah. you know, maybe this, something. Maybe something else. Um, you know, I see a lot of young women and obviously, as you said, I mean, there's so many, there, those issues are so different than older people, right? Marriage, kids, right. Parenting. Well, like in my household, the, the good part of all of this has been I mean, I get a ton of time with my family. I couldn't ask for more than that, right? Mm -hmm. But our days are numbered. That is 100%. And so right now what we're struggling with is that, okay, well, I could pay for this cancer, these cancer meds, but they're not showing any overall survival rate increase anyway. So probably not. But my daughter who has cerebral palsy, we really need to move to a house that is wheelchair accessible. And so we start talking and we go back and forth. And then lo and behold, my, my sweet husband will say to me, I don't want to move out of this house and then have you die in the new house. I want to wait until this all reconciles and then I can move on. Those are heartbreaking. Chose. Those choices are heartbreaking. Or my daughter who's like, will you be able to find a wedding dress for me if I want? And I'm like, well, let's go shop for it now. You know, those are, there, there are these, these just inconceivable choices that people have to make. And even going to work and having to try to go to work through chemotherapy and these kinds of things. And it's just, I think we can do better I think precision medicine is moving us towards that. We need to be more rapid in what we're doing as far as clinical trial development, and it shouldn't take 10 years yeah. to get solid data anymore. Um, on the outside, I, I love your page because you're always talking about eating healthy and plant-based diets and those kinds of things. Um, 
but my whole frame has my, I was always really healthy. I love the gym. I I'm solid lifter. I do tons of different things, but I don't eat for preventative measures anymore. I eat to survive the treatments. And when I go to the gym and when I do take the vitamins that I take, it has nothing to do except for, I know I have to keep myself to be able to tolerate what's coming next. And that's a different frame also. So cancer is always changing, right? It always changes you. I, I, I think you're so right. I mean, and you know, everyone is at different points and what they need at different points changes. It's dynamic, it's fluid, it moves. But you know, one question for you, when you're having those difficult conversations and it sounds like, you know, your family is very open and honest with each other, which I think is important, but when you get those questions, right, about the wedding dress or, you know, your husband saying, I don't want to move yet, your heart's breaking. What do you say? What do you do? I'm a really spiritual person. I, I have started to believe that if the butterfly effect is real, do you know the butterfly effect where the flutter of a wing can change the outcome of the weather, depending on how many does it? If the butterfly effect is real, and then it's not that my life doesn't have that much value to it. It does have value to it. But if my death is the fire that lights under my daughter's bodies to get them to make the change in the world that is necessary for the greater good, then I would take that assignment. I don't think that me living to 80 just to be a part of every particular activity that these sweet girls have, which I want to be and believe that I will be on some existential level. But if I am the butterfly and that is what happens, then I would take that assignment. It's better, I will tell you, my, me having cancer is better than me watching them have cancer. I wouldn't be able to do that. No, I though. So, um, so there is something greater. And I tell them all the time, we know a lot of people who have died from cancer and life will move on. Your life is going to be stable. I'm not the element in it that will determine the outcome of your success. I will always be here. There's no question. But I hope that I, I, I almost would bet the earth shaking that it's one of our daughters who will find the answer. I love it. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Well, you keep up all your good work too, because I know that your patients love you and (laughs) you've got great stuff and... You need to write a book, by the way, as I'm hearing (laughs) hearing you say this, I'm like, oh my God, you're, I mean, you are so well-spoken, but it's not just well-spoken. It's, it's the language, the words are beautiful. Oh, well, I appreciate it. I, uh, I have a gold mine of metaphors in my head, right? So I I think I've been told I'm an old soul more times than I can count. I understood that, but actually, yes, I can see that for you. Like it's just like speaking with you is peaceful. 
Oh, well, I appreciated that. And I love speaking to you too. And I love your Instagram page. And I, I love that I got to be with you at the very beginning and now we're seeing each other again. And, and I really, really, really hope that in another two years, I'm still going to be here and we are going to see something else. Right. I so can't, I can't wait. Is there any right, my friend. last question? If, if any of the listeners do want to connect with you, whether they have low grade serious or something else, sure. you know, how can uh, just at Ingrid Colstow. Mm -hmm. What I like to just tell people about my Instagram page is that my life is like really boring. I don't find my story to be like, you know, super interesting compared to anyone else's. So I don't even really put a lot about cancer on my page. It's mostly like, I'm so proud of my family and I'm one of those people who, yeah, I take pictures of the weather because I hate the fact that it's snowing and then it's sunny and whatever. So if they want to follow me, that's great. But it doesn't offend me if you were to like follow me and then unfollow at the same time because you're like, that lady is so boring. But one thing COVID has done that I appreciate so much is I have reached out to more people through Instagram and just like, hey, do you want to have a phone call and talk and do whatever healing circles? If anybody ever wants to talk more about cancer, more about disabilities, I know a lot about cerebral palsy too and advocate for disabled people. Like, just send me a message. I am I'm so so down with that. So um, before I go to, there's three things I want people to think of when they get their cancer diagnosis. Okay. Get yourself to a cancer center that specializes in rare cancers. Do whatever you can to see a doctor who knows exactly what they're talking about when they talk about your rare cancer. Do not be afraid to find a new doctor if you don't feel like you're being heard. And don't be afraid of anything like that. It is okay to find somebody who is going to listen to you. And the last part about it is cancer sucks <laughs> and <laughs> we can do better and we can do better. That is the, my final word on it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That was incredible. Every time I have these conversations, I learn so much. I gain so much from them and I hope that you did too. Cancer is hard, but having a rare cancer with not a lot of research, not a lot of knowledge about it is really insurmountable at times. And I hope that our conversation gives you a perspective about what it really means to live with a rare cancer, living with cancer in general. You can follow Ingrid on Instagram at Ingrid Colstow. And as always, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Dr. Toplinski. If you enjoyed this conversation or other interlude podcast episodes, I would be honored if you would leave a rating and a review over an Apple podcast, as that really helps me to grow the show and to bring it to more listeners. I am humbled by every single review that I receive. I love reading them. And I, again, that would, it would mean so much. Have a wonderful weekend. Have a wonderful day. And I will see all of you next week.